the front row here, they, there's weather forecast. There might be some sprays, but anyway. Okay, um, have a look at this question. What dangerous idea have, has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? It's a tough question, isn't it? What dangerous idea has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? Now, this was the very question that was asked last year at a Q&A show during the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And so what do you think? This was the panel that night? Four on the panel? How would you answer that? Well, let me tell you how this panel answered. This was the last question on the show. And so Dan Savage, one of the guys there, he's a sex advice author and a gay activist. This was his answer. Population control. I'm pro-choice. I think abortion should be mandatory for about 30 years. That was his answer. The next lady, Jermaine Greer, she's a feminist and a historian. Her answer was freedom. The next lady, Hannah Rosen, she's a writer and editor of The Atlantic. Her answer was, we should watch our kids less, give them more freedom. That was her answer. And then the last guy, Peter Hitchens, some of you may know him. His answer was this. He's a former Marxist revolutionary. He became a Christian. And this was his answer. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you'll ever encounter. What do you think about that answer? That was his answer to the largest turnout at the Opera House there. Many of them non-Christians, they would have been shocked in hearing that. So what do you think? Well, I want to suggest that he was right. He was right with that answer. You see, when you consider Christianity, when you consider the beliefs of Christianity, and when you take that on board, when you make that belief your own, it makes a difference. It must change you. It always changes you. And that's why it's dangerous. It's dangerous for you in a good sense and it's dangerous for this world. And so that's why as we've been working through this letter of 1 John, John has been so concerned throughout this letter in making sure that this is you. That is that you take on that faith as your own, that you believe. You believe the right thing and so you'll end up living the right way. You see, this dangerous faith is dangerous for the good of this world. And so in this letter, what John has been doing, we're towards the end of this letter now, in chapter 5, but what John has been doing in the first four chapters was he was giving us test after test of what it looks like to be a genuine Christian. How do you tell if you're a real Christian, if you're for real? Well, he's given test after test. And so the test he's been giving us, he's repeated them several times already, are these, there, there are three of them. The first test was the faith test. How do you know what to believe? What do you believe? What must you believe to be a real, genuine Christian? And so a verse early on in chapter 224, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And what you have heard from the beginning is the testimony of the apostles about Jesus Christ. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. That's one of the tests we've seen recurring through John. The next test we've been seeing throughout John is the love test. And we saw this last week when Greg preached. 
If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so that's another test. If you are a genuine Christian, you must believe the right thing and you must love. You must love God, you must love your brother, that is your brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a final test which we've seen several times as well. And the test is the obedience test. And so early in chapter 2, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so these three tests, the faith test, the love test, the obedience test, we've been seeing this theme recurring throughout John several times already. These are the tests of genuine Christianity. Now, when we come to our passage today, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We'll work through these 12 verses, quite difficult verses, but we'll work through them all. What we see today is that these three tests, John, in a sense, combines them all together. It's what PhDs are made of. It just does your mind in. He combines them all together and he shows how they're all interconnected and interrelated. And so have your Bibles open. We'll work through these verses. And so when you look at this, it's almost illegible. Uh, Yvonne told me this week she read this passage with Erica and she, had, she came home not understanding what it was all about. And so that scared me a bit. I was worried. What am I going to say? But yet the word of God is meant to be understood. So let's work through it carefully. So firstly, what John does in this passage, so looking at chapter 5, John firstly shows the connection between your faith and your love. Your faith and your love. And so firstly he says, your faith is in Jesus as the Christ. That is, your faith, your belief is in Jesus as the chosen King of God, the Saviour. He's the one you must believe in if you are to have eternal life. There is no other name that you can believe in to have eternal life. He is the only one. Jesus as the Christ, God's chosen king. And you see, that faith that we have, that Christians have in Christ, is not something that comes naturally. It's not something we can muster up with our own willpower, with our own mind power and say, I believe in Jesus. It, it, it doesn't happen that way. You see, rather, faith is something which comes to us from God. We're told here in this verse, in fact, those who are born of God, those who are born again, have this faith. If you are born of God, you believe. It's supernatural. And so have a look at verse, the first bit of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, had he come to believe that, is born of God. And so this is the faith test, okay, the first test. And so I've tried to, what I've done is, what we'll see tonight is, I'll show you how the different tests are all connected and related. It's, it's just my engineering mind trying to make sense of what John is saying. And so this is the faith test. We are born of God and so we believe in Jesus. He is the Christ. Okay? But you see, faith in Christ is something that never stands alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says our, our salvation, we uh, believe in Jesus our faith alone saves us, but the thing is, the faith which saves is never alone. And so that's why John, what he does now is he connects faith with love. He shows that when you have faith, you must also love. If you believe in Jesus, you must also love. You can't have one without the other. And so what this means is that we can't be people who say, 
as long as I'm a loving person, as long as I'm a kind person, as long as I love everyone, even my enemies, it doesn't matter what I believe. You can't say that. You can't have one without the other. Nor can we say, as long as I believe the right thing, as long as I believe the truth, it doesn't matter whether I get along with other Christians or not. You can't say that. You can't have one without the other. And so we can't get so caught up with truth and doctrine and study and building all the head knowledge and forget to love. We heard that this morning. Or nor can we be so compassionate, so flexible in our morality that it distorts the truth. You must have them both, faith and love. You can't have one without the other. You see, the Christian love is grounded in the Christian faith. Now, this love is for both God and his children, we're told here. And who are his children? Well, that is the church, the body of believers, the body of saints. So love God and love his children. And so what this means is that if you really do love God, you can't live like a hermit. You can't seclude yourself from other Christians. So you can't claim, if you're a genuine Christian, you can't claim, oh, as long as I love God, I don't actually need to come to church. I don't need to be involved with other Christians. I don't need to be involved in their life. I don't need to love them. You can't say that. It doesn't happen that way. When you love God, you must love the church. You must love his children. So you must have them both. And so if you love God, you must also love his church. And if you love his church, that is precisely because you love God. You see, you have to have them both. And so this is what we see on this side now. That's the love test. Loving God, loving the church. And so let's turn back to chapter 5, verse 1. We read, everyone who, loves, uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And so this is the love test. Loving God, loving his church. And so what we're seeing here is that the two tests are related. Faith and love. Your belief is the grounds for your love. You can't have one without the other. Next, he does... He he makes things a bit more complicated now. How do we actually know that we do love God and how do we actually know that we do love the church, that we do love each other? Well, John now makes this clear by connecting love and obedience. So you know you love the church if you obey God and you know if you love God if you obey God. That sort of makes sense. If you obey If you love the church, then you must obey God. If you love God, then you must obey God. So look at uh, verse 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Do you see that connection there? How do we know that we love the children of God? By carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. How do we love God? How do we love each other? We obey God. And if you think about it, it sounds complex, but it's really how every family works. And so if, for example, my three kids, if they are to show love towards each other, they must obey me because my my commands, my house rules for them is for them to love each other. And so when I tell one of them, you must stop poking your brother in the eye 
with the sword, with the Ninja Turtle sword. It's plastic, okay? <laughs> you must stop that. And if that child obeys me, he is in a sense showing love to that brother by not poking him in the eye. You, you see that? And, uh, you know, on the flip side, it, my, my children, they showed love for me. And how did they do that? By obeying me. So what John is doing is showing the connection between love and obedience. Okay, so I'll put that on. So that's the obedience sense. It, it, you love the church by obeying God. You love God by obeying God. Okay, but obedience has an, another element to it, which we'll see in the next bit. Obedience. In obeying God, it also means overcoming the world. So this is the next bit. That sounds confusing. Obeying God also means overcoming the world. That is to have victory over this world. Now what does that mean? Well, you see, when we obey God, when we obey God, listen to his commands, we overcome the world. And that is because when we live God's way, when we are obedient to him, when God comes first in all our decisions, in all of our desires, he is top priority. When God is first, when we obey him, it means that you, you are no longer a slave to the things and the desires of this world. You have overcome this world because you are no longer a slave to it, because you are a slave to a greater being, to God. And what are the things of this world? Well, earlier in John we read this. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, they are the things of this world. You see, the world is, is something that lures us, sucks us in, draws us in. It seduces us with its pleasures, with its wealth, with its successes, with its fame, with its pride. And you can't escape that. That's what the world is like. They are the things that, this, that drives the people of this world. You know, the things that drive this world is lust and greed and insatiable cravings. Craving for things that we hope will satisfy us, but in the end will only destroy us and crush us. And so if you think about this, it's just the way this world, this life is. The lust, the desires of things that are not mine. You know, I might have a Nokia phone and I see you have an iPhone, I want that. And then when I get your iPhone, there's an iPhone 6, I want that too, it never ends. I'm driving a Corolla. You've got a BM. I want that. And when I get that, you, you end up driving a Ferrari. I want that too. And when I get the Ferrari, you get a truck. I want that too. You see, it never ends. I'm in a unit now. You've got a house. I want that. When I get that, you've got a double-story house. I want that too. And then you get a tennis court. I want that too. You see, it's insatiable. The desires, the, the lure of this world will suck us in and will never be satisfied, will never be fulfilled, and that is the seduction of this world. And it only gets stronger and stronger. However, you see, for the Christian who overcomes this world, it is different. You see, the things that drive the Christians are not the things that drive this world. You see, Christians have something far bigger, far greater that they live for. Someone far more important that they live for. They live for God. They love God. They obey God. And so they have overcome this world and its desires. And that's why John said this in chapter 2. The world and its desires pass away, 
But the man who does the will of God, you see, the man who obeys God lives forever. And so you have overcome this world. And that's why John says here in this command, the commands of God are not burdensome. Do we see that? They are not burdensome. And that's because we people were made in the image of God and we were made for God to serve him, to love him, to obey him. And so when we do that, that's what we were made for and that fits. And so living God's way is not burdensome. It's the way life is meant to work. But now this obedience test. You see, this ability to obey God, this ability to overcome this world, is again not something we can just muster up with our own willpower. It's not something we can just muster up with our own mind and strength. It doesn't work that way. And that's what John tells us here now. What John does now is he connects this obedience test back to the faith test. You see, we're only able to obey God, we're only able to overcome this world, not because of our own strength and our own willpower, we're only able to do that because of the former fact that we are born of God and we have faith in Jesus Christ. You see that? It might sound a bit complicated, but what John has done is he's done a full circle. He's gone full circle. Faith means that you must love. You love because you obey. When you obey, you're overcoming the world. You only can overcome the world because of your faith. It's all connected, you see. And so have a look at chapter 5, verses 3b, and, and, and we'll read to verse 5. And so, his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You see how he connects overcoming the world, obeying God back to our faith? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now something we may miss here in this idea of overcoming the world, being victors in this world, having victory over this world, something we may miss is that what John was claiming here was a daring claim. It was a radical claim for him to say such a thing. You see, during the first century in the Roman world, the only people who enjoyed victory were the Romans. They were the superpowers. They're the ones who conquered the empire. They're the ones who established what was known as the Pax Romana, that is the Roman peace. But now here, in this passage, John was daring enough to say that those who in fact are the real victors, those who in fact have the real victory over this world, were not the Romans, but the crucified Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have faith in, him and his humble believers. And so in the eyes of this world, Christians, you know what, you look like losers. But in the eyes of God, you are the winners, you are the victors. You have overcome this world because of your faith in Christ. And so, having a look at this again, if you have faith, then you must love. If you love, you also obey. And if you obey, it means that you have overcome this world. And you've only overcome this world because you have faith. Do you see how it's gone around full circle? 
So he's connecting all these, these three tests that we've been seeing over and over again through John and he's connecting them all together in these five verses. And so we've come full circle back to this faith test. And so we must ask again, well, how do we jump on? How do we know that what we believe is true? How do we have this faith in this first place? Now, now sometimes you might hear people say, well, you Christians who believe, well, you just believe blindly. Your faith is blind. When you believe in, in your religion, you're just switching off your brain. You're just turning off your mind. Have you heard that before? You know, you're not using your mind at all. But you see, that's not the case at all. Rather, Christian faith is based on testimonies, evidence, witness. You see, one of the big issues was this false teaching, this heresy that was creeping into the church. And that's why John was so, so uh, adamant at making this clear. You see, one of the big issues, one of the false teaching that was creeping into the church was this belief that Jesus is distinct from Christ. Strange idea, okay, that Jesus is distinct from Christ. So what they believed was that Jesus is just, was just an ordinary human being, a carpenter, your average man. Nothing important about him at all. But at his baptism, the divine Christ came upon him. Okay, so there's the joining of Jesus and Christ, and so he became Jesus Christ. And then at his crucifixion, before he breathed his last, before he died, the divine Christ left. And so the person left hanging on the cross was just a human Jesus. So this was a, what we call a heresy. It was a false teaching, thinking that somehow there's two entities becoming Jesus Christ at the baptism and leaving before the death. And so this was what John was addressing here. How do we know what we believe? Well, what John does here is, in a sense, like a, in a, a court, a law court, a court of law, sorry. In a Jewish court of law, it required two or three witnesses to establish a truth. And so what John does in these few verses is he calls upon three witnesses to testify that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ all the way through his life and even through his death. It's none of these two entity stuff. And so have a look at verses 6 to 8 with me. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. Sounds confusing, doesn't it? We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. And so you're probably thinking, I was thinking this, what's going on here? What was John on about? What does it mean for Jesus to come not only by water, but by water and blood? Now throughout church history, there have been different interpretations, I won't go into them, but what John was getting at here was to say that Jesus was always the Christ. Fully man, fully God, all the way through. He was always the eternal Son of God. Always the beloved, eternal Son of God. He was always Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God, through water. Through his baptism. At his baptism he was declared, this is my Son. He was fully man, fully God, always Jesus Christ, also by blood, that is through his crucifixion. The divine bit did not just suddenly leave. 
And so what John was claiming there was the person who died at the cross, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, he's in a sense saying God died there too. The divine son of God died at the cross. You see, that was a profound claim which those heretics could not accept. In a sense, what happened was the divine son of God died because if he did not die, then there is no sacrificial death. Then there is no atoning sacrifice. And if there is no sacrifice, then there is no salvation for those who believe in him. And so the first two witnesses, there was the baptism and the crucifixion. At the baptism, John the Baptist himself, he said, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And then at the crucifixion, it was the centurion who said, surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus remained, Jesus Christ all the way through. So that was John's point there. That's the two witnesses. Now the third one. He calls upon the Holy Spirit now. The Holy Spirit also points to this same fact, that Jesus is always the Christ, always the eternal Son of God. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, he takes the word of God, which he inspired, takes the word of God, the witness of the apostles, and he applies it to the human mind and heart. And so we who believe have the Holy Spirit. And so here we have three witnesses, spirit, water and blood, all in agreement, all making the same point that Jesus is the Christ all the way through. You can't get that wrong. But behind these three testimonies, if we move on now, behind these three is in fact the testimony of God himself. He stands behind all three. And so John says, if you accept the testimony of human beings, human witnesses, then you surely you must be able to accept the testimony of God himself about his own son. And so, for example, if I tell you now that last week I saw a whale, you might not believe me, so I'll call on another witness. So my daughter's not here, but just say, Esther, was here. And Esther, did we see a whale? And she say, yes, you might not still believe too. I'll ask Yvonne now, surely you must have believed Yvonne. A third witness, and everyone must, has to, and should say yes. <laughs> and, and so three witnesses, you must believe us, right? I've got a picture, actually. That's the whale. That's the extent of the whale that we saw in Warrnambool. But anyway, if you believe the testimony of human witnesses, surely you must believe the testimony of God himself. And in a sense, that was the point John was saying here. God says, this is my son in whom I love, in him I am well pleased. If we say to God, I don't believe that. I I, I find that hard to believe. I can't believe that he's my saviour. I can't believe that his death was for me. We're effectively calling God a liar. We're saying he's untrustworthy. Untrustworthy, we're saying we can't believe him. And so this is what we see in verses 9 and 10. Have a look. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. You see, John's argument is quite circular. Okay, And so what did God say about his son, Jesus Christ? Well, last two verses. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life 
And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so this is God's witness, God's testimony about Jesus. This is God's promise. I sent my only beloved Son into this world to become a man for you. This is out of my love for you. He lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that you deserve and he did that for you while you were sinners. If you have him, if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, then you have eternal life. If you reject him, then you've got nothing. And so that's God's testimony. And so how do I come to have faith in Jesus in the first place? Well, God has provided his own testimony and those three before. And when I believe the testimony of God himself about Jesus, then I come into eternal life, a life that goes beyond this world, a life that goes beyond the grave. And so this is the passage. Twelve verses. I mean, this is what PhDs are made of. And so where to from here for us? Well, by way of implications, three things. Firstly, get your faith right. Get it right. That is, make sure you know exactly what you believe. If you muck it up, you've got nothing. Make sure exactly you know what you believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour, the King of this world, who came and laid down his life for you. You need to have that crystal clear in your mind. You need to know that, because if you don't, then there is no eternal life. Get your faith right. You see, no matter how lovable you are, how nice of a person you are, how charitable you are, how adorable you are, it actually makes no difference at all to your eternal destiny if you do not get your faith right. It comes down to that point. You see, if you were standing before God, okay, to say our lives come to an end and we're all standing before God and God was to ask us, why would I let you into heaven? Why would I let you and allow you into my kingdom? Will you know exactly what to say? Will you know exactly whom you believe? You see, get your faith right. That's the first thing. Have it crystal clear in your mind. Know in your mind and in your heart. And so when I share the gospel, when I um, have the privilege of sharing the wonderful glory of God and Christ and what he's done with non-Christians, I always end with making sure that they understand and they're able to answer that question. What would you say if God asked you? And so you muck up Jesus in any way, there is nothing. There is no salvation, there is nothing, no matter how nice of a person you are. And that's why John in this passage, in this book, was at pains to ensure that we accept God's testimony about his son. But if you get your faith right, you have eternal life. So that's the first thing. Second thing, that is, get the order right. Get the order right. That is, believe first and then live accordingly. Believe first and then live accordingly. Not the other way around. Have you heard people say to you, I've heard this many times, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I don't think I can follow what you believe because I don't feel I'm good enough yet. Or, or I don't think I'm ready to believe because my life isn't in order yet. 
Have you heard people say that to you? But the thing is, you see, you can't live as a Christian before you become a Christian. Get the order right. You can't live God's way unless you have first been born of God. Get the order right. Now, this may be some of you here. You've been coming to church. You've been exploring the person of Jesus. You've been hearing the gospel of Jesus, but you're still thinking, I don't feel like I'm good enough to be a Christian. Well, get the order right. Believe first. Believe first. Be saved first. Be safe first. Belong to God first. Be adopted by God first. Come into the family and household of God first. Have eternal life first. And then love and obedience will follow. Get the order right. Now, that's in a very important order that we should actually keep in mind all the way throughout our Christian life. Because for Christians, for even some of us who have been Christians for many years, we tend to reverse it. We tend to start thinking, God owes me. Look how much I'm, I'm doing for God. Look how much I'm serving God. Look how much I'm giving to the church. God owes me. We need to get the order right. And the order is salvation always precedes love and obedience. Okay, that's the order. Salvation precedes love and obedience. And so be saved first, be safe first. That's the second one. The third one, get your life right. Get your life right. Now this is for those who consider yourself a Christian. You see, if you're not a Christian, well, the first one's for you. Be saved first. If you are a Christian, then this you need to hear. Get your life right. You see, if you consider yourself a Christian, our faith must issue out in love and obedience. There's no other way and you can't have one without the other. And so if you call yourself a Christian, your life must be filled with love. Love for God and love for his church. Your love must show your obedience, your deep obedience towards God. And so you must love God. It must be seen. It must be obvious. You're not putting a show for us because God sees everything, but it must be obvious. You're nurturing your love for God. You're spending time reading his word, meditating on it. Now, I wonder how many of us spend an hour, two hours each day on Facebook, but we won't give five minutes to reading the word of life. I wonder how many of us will be checking Twitter and I just learnt of Tumblr this week. But we won't spend any time in praying to our God, depending on him, thanking him for all that he's blessed us with. I wonder how many of us just spend so much time, so crazy, fixated on our studies, on our career, on our work, that we don't take time to love God, to adore him, to desire him, to delight in him. What is your love for God like? Is it obvious? Because if you do believe, you must love God. It has to be that way. There's no other way. If God has blessed you with gifts, we heard this morning, you have abilities and competencies that that are for the benefit of others. Do you focus all that to building your own kingdom? You know, for your own work, for your own career, for that promotion? Or do you direct your energy to see and to think about how can I use that for the love of God, to serve the body of Christ, to serve the church? 
Is the love of God, the love for God, in your life obvious? Now, in saying this, it's not to make us feel guilty in any way for us Christians. You see, we're already in the family of God. And so the encouragement is really just to live like it, that you do belong to God, that God is your heavenly Father. And what about your love for your fellow Christians? Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you think about it, if you are genuine Christians, you pass those three tests, if you are genuine Christians, you will be with each other for all eternity. I mean, that's longer than a marriage, right? A marriage lasts until I die. Eternity goes on. We'll be with each other for all eternity. We must love each other, not just in heaven, but now. We must. If we love God, then we must love each other. And so think about how you love each other. Do you desire to be with your brothers and sisters? Is your commitment to coming to church each week? Or are you one of those who are open to any offers? Once there is a better offer, I'm off. There's a party, I'm off. There's a movie, I'm off. There's anything at all, I'm off. Or is your desire, your love for a fellow believer, that you desire that Sunday where you come to meet and to share and to love each other in fellowship? Last week I met a family who've been coming to this church for a bit over a year. And it was just uh, the Saturday week ago. And, and the man said to me, you, many of you will know him but I won't say his name, he said to me, our favourite day, the best day of the week for us and our family is Sunday. When I heard that, it was so encouraging because he desired to be with the family of God. He loved the family of God. That should be our, our attitude towards the people of God, isn't it? I love because we love God. I love because we obey God. Loving each other. How about how you use your time during the week or use your resources, your money, your home? Are you a Christian who say you love the brother and sister but you've never taken anyone out for a coffee or invited anyone over to your home? You, you keep your home safe from intruders and strangers. This is your family. You can't do that to your family. You must love them because they will be with you for all eternity. What a joy that is. So check your hearts and ask yourself, do I love the people of God? When someone is sick, will I be the one thinking and praying for them, calling them, writing a card? I know there are some wonderful ladies who do that all the time in this church. Is your love for the people of God? If you have faith, if you call yourself a Christian, then it must be that way. But we need to be clear here. Our love and our obedience do not save us. Okay, Remember, we have to get the order right. Our love and our obedience do not save us. But what it does, it, it ratifies our faith. That is, it confirms our faith. It confirms that our faith is real. So salvation does precede love and obedience, but love and obedience must follow. There must be love and obedience after salvation. And so when we think about what Peter Hitchens said at the beginning, we come back to that now. You see, if you think about this, a faith which is so transforming, a faith which is so radical, a faith which always and must always make a difference, 
If you think about what Peter said, that's true, isn't it? It is dangerous. And so if you think about what Peter said at the beginning, the most dangerous idea that has the greatest potential to change the world for the better is the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now, in that show, Peter Hitchens didn't leave it out there. He's talking to a whole bunch of non-Christians. They were shocked. What? Faith in Jesus is the most dangerous idea? But he went on to say this. It's because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place in which there is justice and there is hope and therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. I mean, let that not be you. It's a dangerous faith we who believe in Jesus have. But it's a faith that not only changes our life, not only changes the church, it changes the world, but also your eternal destiny. And so let's turn to God in prayer.